Hello from Canada. This is Christina Campbell, and you're listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on The Probiotic Life. Welcome, welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, to The Probiotic Life. I am your host, Ben Klenner. Well, today we've got a great interview with Christina Campbell. Um, she is a science writer and an author of two books, The Well-Fed Microbiome Cookbook, and she co-authored a textbook on the gut microbiome. You can actually check these out and all of her info at buychriscampbell.com. That's B-Y-K-R-I-S-C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L.com bychriscampbell.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at bychriscampbell and on Facebook at Intestinal Gardener. But first, I promised a giveaway. And you might be asking, you might be wondering yourself, what am I giving away? Well, I'm giving away FPJ. You might have heard me talk about it before. FPJ, fermented plant juice, is part of the Korean natural farming method. Um, And I believe it's one of the Uh, essential cornerstones of Korean natural farming. To find out about how you can win this prize, this giveaway, go to the Probiotic Life website. And this is going to be an Instagram giveaway. So you need to follow the Probiotic Life on Instagram. You need to like the entry post related to this. And then you need to repost that and tag the probiotic life in that as well as hashtag probiotic life. This is just to raise a bit more awareness and share the experience with someone of giving them the elixir of life. Well, no, I'm not going to go that far, but it is very beneficial for your plants. And in fact, we're going to have Drake on again soon to talk about the health benefits of using this stuff internally. So, Check that out on the Probiotic Life website. And today with Christina, we talk about probiotics and the microbiome. We talk about communicating science because she is a science writer. We talk about women in journalism and we talk about family and fermentation. Christina lives in downtown Victoria, BC, beautiful British Columbia. And one thing you might hear in the background is some float planes because there's lots of float planes coming out of Victoria. Just think a beautiful place on the beautiful island of Vancouver Island. So without further ado, here is the interview with Christina Campbell. Our guest today is a science writer who specializes in the communication about the gut microbiota. She is a member of the Gut Microbiota for Health publishing team and has interviewed dozens of experts on nutrition and the microbiome. A member of the Canadian Science Writers Association, 
She is a co-author of an upcoming academic textbook on nutrition and gut microbiota. Welcome to the show, Christina Campbell. Thank you so much, Ben. I hope I got that right. Yes, that's all right. Um, so thanks for coming on The Probiotic Life. Uh, I think you've heard a little bit about uh, what we're doing here, just trying to connect um, the information that's out there, the science that's out there to people who want to apply the science, to people who want to uh, be ahead of the bell curve as, as it were. So I sort of heard about you through your writing and especially on, um, there's a fantastic website that I'll, I'll link to called um, Gut Microbiota for Health. And that's where I sort of um, started reading some of your articles. I was like, wow, this is, this is fantastic. I need to reach out to this lady. So um, here we are. I reached out to you and um, you agreed to do an interview with me. So can you share a little bit um, with us, how how did you actually um, come to this point in your journey? What what started you on um, writing specifically for the microbiota? Right. So um, I've always had a drive to write, and um, but I didn't always write about microbes. So you know, I had started writing about different topics and was sort of journalistically getting into these um, different pieces online. Um, I started having some health issues kind of in my early 20s. And um, I guess you have to know, I come, I come from a family where digestive issues are everywhere, um, both in my immediate and extended family. And I just remember one Christmas dinner um, where we have uh, Ukrainian roots on that side. And we had a Christmas dinner where we prepared the 12 Ukrainian dishes and um, during the dinner, it seemed like not a single person was able to eat all of the dishes. <laughs> so essentially, we were all cutting out different foods, and um, we all had to cut out one or another of the dishes that were prepared for this dinner. Um, and I kind of looked around and I thought, this is a real shame because, you know, we were supposed to be having this great family connection right now. And here we are, we've all got these dietary problems and gut issues and what's going on. <laughs> so um, that sort of led me to explore, um, you know, about my health issue and those of my family. And um, I got into, I, I discovered a community of people in Vancouver who had turned to fermented foods as, um, you know, a way to improve their health. And so I got involved in this community and I tasted some really amazing fermented foods that kind of changed my mind <laughs> on, uh, you know, thinking that bacteria were gross and disgusting. And I thought, wow, these bacteria can do this. This is delicious. You know, I had a fermented pickle for the first time. And so then very quickly, I started to think again, journalistically about this, what's going on, you know, this community, they have something and what is it? Um, and so I started to explore that in my writing and it's led to a point where I am now where um, I essentially write about nothing but the microbiome. Uh, you mentioned that I have two books. One's a cookbook, one's a textbook. Um, I write a lot of blog posts and I've also written things like educational courses, uh, reports and press releases and infographics, and then also a lot of um, writing for social media like uh, tweets and Facebook. 
Oh, wow. So this is pretty much your, everything that you do is all around the, the microbiome. It is now. Yes, absolutely. And it's, um, it's a great passion of mine, so I never get tired of learning more about it. <laughs> I think that helps. Um, and I, But I do find now um, there is a demand for writing and work that passes scientific muster in this field um, that's, you know, that has the science in mind, um, you know, in the content. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, it's one of the... the, the- cutting edges of research isn't it the the microbiome and um everything coming out i would say it's probably only the last 10 years that it's really exploded absolutely yeah and part of that um is because scientists now have access to new techniques for analyzing the microbiome um before they had to pick certain microbes they wanted to culture and try and culture those but of course um with next generation sequencing techniques they can have like a full picture of all the microbes in an environment, and that has really changed what we can know about this field. Mm-hmm. What issues did you te- do tend to come up when you're writing about the microbiome and researching for this? Well, I think um, in general, I think it's quite difficult to report on science, um, no matter what the area, because I think just the way science is set up. Um, it's very conservative and, you know, science set things up. So they essentially will try to disprove what they think is happening. You know, it's that conservative. And so, you know, if they actually observe what they think is going to happen, then it's, it's got to be true, right? Without a doubt. So, so just very conservative. And so reporting on that is pretty difficult. Um, and the way I think of it is like, it's like if you're building a pyramid, you know, the, the final pyramid is what matters. But, um, you know, you have a lot of bricks along the way. And, you know, every brick rests on the ones that come before it and also depends on the ones that come after it to, you know, replicate the results or so on. And so it's all interconnected, you know, in this in this field of science. And so at what point do you take one study or one of those bricks and say, hey, everyone, this is what happened here. Um, So it seems pretty arbitrary to report on one study. You kind of have to know that overall picture, where things have come from and where they're going in order to report effectively on it. Um, And so I found uh, just building that for myself, that overall perspective of the pyramid, um, has really helped me to put into context all of the new studies that come out. And there are so many, I'm sure you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, the number of scientific studies is just increasing exponentially every year um, and probably will continue to do so because I know a lot of interesting work going on and um, other sort of uh, areas of clinical research. So um, clinical researchers like doctors are incorporating the microbiome into their existing studies. So I think that number is just gonna keep going up. And so I think um, one of the issues is just, yeah, um, when you have a new study, putting it into the context of everything before and after, and then again, pulling out something that can be used um, in everyday life. Isn't that interesting? It sounds, uh, Christina, like you're using your intuition, which is sort of outside the realm of um, science, reductionistic uh, methods to 
um, aggregate all this information to present to people? I think so, you know, and I, I try to stick to the facts. And then there's the piece of, you know, I'm a human and I have, um, you know, I have children at home and I have to do things. And so using the best of what the science tells me to live my life. And I think that that is, it's a very tricky skill to have because you, you know, you don't want to make the scientists angry by, <laughs> you know, um, over extrapolating from what they say. But I think there is a piece where you finally have to put the science down and then say, okay, so knowing what I know so far, what's the best guess about the best way to live my life and then going for it. Um, so that's, that's what I really try to do. And I think that was the approach I took in the cookbook, The Well-Fed Microbiome, because the science on nutrition and gut microbiota is far from finished. In fact, it's barely beginning. Um, but in that cookbook, I took sort of the main couple of ideas emerging from the science and tried to turn them into something practical, which was recipes you could feed your family. Um, and, you know, with the caveat that these rules might change over time, but for now, this is the best we know. Fantastic, and that's uh, and that's what we're all about, is actually getting the information, doing the best uh, with with what we've got, and still being open to learn, still being open to um, move forward, can some ideas that are you know mm -hmm. uh, outdated, and now we have mm -hmm. the, the the opportunity to do that with. Um, social media, well, more than social media, just the internet um, connecting everyone uh, in general and then specifically people like you who are actually uh, taking that hard data and and making it more palatable for the general public. Mm -hmm. And I think all, you know, the guideline that I use um, is just to communicate where the science ends and where my speculation begins. And so, um, I think in general, that's a pretty safe rule all around because, I mean, there are people um, who complain about microbiome hype, which is, you know, the exaggeration of what the science says. But I think as long as it's communicated, you know, okay, here's what we know from the science, and then here's my jumping off point, I think that kind of, it solves the problem and, you know, avoids getting into too much trouble um, in terms of what's empirically known. Mm-hmm. Have you have you found um, specific aspects of this that really do get um, misinterpreted or um, hyped up? For example, you know, um, here in Perth, we're a little bit um, further behind in terms of like um, sustainability, uh, regeneration, um, the health trends as well. And a specific example of that is kombucha. So kombucha has really only come into the market here in Perth in the last um, maybe two or three years, whereas I know in Vancouver it's been around for uh, quite a lot longer. And there's a lot of hype around it here, which means that um, people sort of get put off by all of that hype and they're like, oh, it's just another fad, it will pass. Uh, can, you speak mm -hmm. to, can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. I think you make a really good point about fads. You know, um, I think the danger with this whole field is that it will be passed off as a fad, but I deeply believe that that's not what it is, you know, what it's supposed to be because, you know, essentially um, in and on our human bodies, of course we have human genes, but, 
you know, now we've discovered we also have microbial genes, right? All of the genes of the, the bacteria, the fungi, uh, viruses, whatever else is living on us, archaea. Um, and it's the combination of those two genes, right? That um, those sets of genes that are going to determine what, you know, our phenotype, you know, the end result. So I think, you know, this is actually really big. And I, I, I again, um, I balk at the idea that, oh, you know, yeah, fermented foods is the latest fad because, you know, it might just be really meaningful in the long term. We might add it to dietary recommendations and it might, you know, we might look back at now when we had little awareness of fermented foods and think it was a bit of a dark age or something that, you know, we didn't realize the necessity of these fermented foods and the microbes in our lives. And so, um, yeah, I think... I do my best in my writing to um, to try and convey um, again what's what's really true and what science has been done, and sort of do the slow and steady build instead of you know calling it a fad or the latest thing because I, I think that doesn't serve the purpose in the long run. Mm-hmm. For sure. And so we we've interviewed um, a few different people on this podcast. Um, mostly focusing on agriculture because my background is in landscaping and horticulture and that's how I sort of got interested in the microbiome was um, it was actually through aquaponics because I, I wanted to start to grow grow like that and then I realized oh it's the microbes that actually convert all the fish waste into plant food so microbes and then that built and built so we've we've heard a lot of um, information and science from people who are more into agriculture and um, reading a lot of stuff on the internet it's it's easy to make the jump between healthy soil equals healthy plants which equals healthy humans um, but as I started to and as people start to get into it there there's actually some blocks missing in there and that's where the sort of latest research is. Have you um, have you come a- across any um, sort of significant blocks? Any anything that we haven't really figured out yet? How it actually connects from healthy soil to healthy humans? I think there's lots. Yeah, there's lots in there. You know, parts of the the chain or the journey um, that aren't known. Um, there's a, a very interesting project going on. Um, at the Rob Knight Lab in San Diego, University of California, San Diego. So um, first of all, they have the American Gut Project, which, do you know about this? Yeah, yep. Um, I've actually reached out to him. Uh, what's his name? Tony, is it? Uh, Rob, Dr. Rob Knight. Rob Knight, yeah, that's right. Um, so he coordinates that project. I mean, he coordinates many projects, but what I find interesting is he's coordinating American Gut, so that's um, trying to link you know, lifestyle factors and diet to what's in people's guts. But beyond that, he's begun a project um, in collaboration with another lab that's called the Global Food Omics Project. And this one um, is attempting to trace molecules and microbes from, um, you know, from the soil to the food, to the food preparation area in the home, to the gut. So that whole chain, you know, of how um, food goes from soil to your stomach and your digestive system. Um, so I think a project like that is, is going to be really enlightening in, in making that whole connection. 
Um, I had a chance to be on stage uh, in Portland this past summer with Julia Galglitz, and she's one of the uh, the leads in this project. And you know, she was saying to me, you know, she has a daughter, and um, she's changed the way that she eats in her house because of the you know preliminary results of this project already. Like, you know, finding molecules of you know pesticides on her cutting boards and um, wow. you know, tracing the origin of those. And so she basically now just buys all organic, um, just from that little piece of information. So, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff is like, we can see the data and then make our own informed choices about what we do with that. And, you know, for her, that was, that was what she thought was the best, you know, course for her and her family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how, um, people if they have the information then they, they they will start to to make changes for example um, I'm reading a book at the moment called the secret life of your microbiome and um, just telling my wife a little bit about some of the information in there she's already made um, changes because she's like oh Ben thanks for sharing this with me I just had no idea um, what would you say are some of the the most significant things that, that you see people change over or some of the, the key points that um, people start to change or they, they become awakened to this stuff? For me, I guess, you know, what I talk to people most about, and these are both scientists and, you know, everyday people, um, is diet and the microbiome. And so I guess I find the more people learn about it, the more changes they make to their diet. So you know, Ben, I'm not sure if you're like me, but, you know, at one point in my life, I thought about diet and I knew people, you know, I knew what you're supposed to eat, you know, to have a good diet. It's sort of, you know, we learned that in grade four health um, and, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables and a little meat, this kind of thing. And the, the food pyramids that we have in every country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess I never really connected that deeply to my health. I thought, okay, yeah, that's, that's fair enough. So I'll try and kind of hit that, but, you know, hopefully I never get, you know, heart disease in 40 years. And it it was just a very distant connection from the diet to the health. But the more I learned about, um, how the gut microbiome reacts to diet, the more I realized it's essentially very quick. It's, it's almost immediate the way that Gut microbiome, you know, your gut microbiome changes in response to diet, whether it's um, that different species proliferate, or and you know whether um, no matter what you eat, what you know the macronutrients, or if you're specifically taking probiotics, that may change things too. Um, so the species change, and as well the metabolites they produce as their end products, um, those change, and so. Um, and those, you know, there's a lot of research going on about certain metabolites, for example, the short chain fatty acids that underline how important they are to a lot of health processes or processes that result in good health in the body. And, um, you know, just making that connection that it happens immediately. You have all these hungry mouths, trillions of hungry mouths in your gut, and they're waiting to see what you eat because they're going to change immediately. I mean, that. Mm-hmm was huge motivation for me to um, really kind of clean up my diet um, and eat a lot more things that 
um, you know, I think are going to be good and result in better health. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. Um, one of the most, uh, the simplest changes that I've made um, over the last couple of months is actually just having uh, fermented food with almost every meal. Uh, you know, I, I have a little kefir ritual in the morning and I um, make it and strain it. And then throughout the day, I'll actually just swig it from from the research that I've, I've read and from the uh, um, articles of people like you have written I'm like oh okay so if just have a little bit of this with every meal and you know having nourish bowls add a little bit of sauerkraut or something into there yeah absolutely and I think you know the fact you've made it a routine is really key too because what I understand about the nutrition research is um, everything has to be um, a lifestyle change if it's going to make a difference mm. so um you know, it's your dietary pattern, your overall dietary habits that exert the long-term pressure on your microbiome and your gut to be a certain way. Um, it's not these little, you know, weekend, you know, trips to the great restaurant. I mean, maybe those might have some importance, but it's it's really that overall dietary pattern that shapes your gut microbiome. So, um, or the portion of it, I should say, that can be shaped by diet. Um, and so, yeah, like you say, like having your rituals, having your, um, for me, it's, yeah, I have granola in the mornings and a, a salad for lunch and my yogurt. And yeah, I mean, um, I think that's the way to make the sustainable change that's going to result in better health, you know, from what we know about the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Which is always changing, isn't it? What, what we know about the microbiome. For sure. So what? Does the science have limits? To where 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 does the science end? I mean, I think yes. Uh, I definitely think it has limits, and sort of like we talked be- talked about before, like you know, the science is never going to um, give you all the information you need to make every decision in your life. Um, and I guess uh, you know, with in court, what is it they say? They say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So I think science is the portion that says nothing but the truth. So that's what you get with science. But you don't get the whole truth at any given time. There's still so much more to know. Um, and so I think you have to you know, take the piece that is nothing but the truth and then build your life on that. And um, you know, keep up with what the evolving knowledge as best you can, but you know, also build on it with what you've got to get done in a day. Um, and that I think is is a little bit tricky, but um, you know I'm really heartened to see yourself and and some others really trying hard to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, this sort of makes me think of we did an interview with Dr. Elaine Ingham, and uh, she is a sort of a former scientist in compost and compost tea. Um, she was telling us about some sharing with us some some great sort of research and evidence for, you know, building microbes in the soil. Um, And obviously she's been writing papers for like 30, 35 years, maybe 40 years, something like that. And so she has, she knows the the scientific method backwards and forwards. And so when I was asking her about probiotics, she said, you know, um, it has to be tested rigorously, um, you know, double blind study, uh, peer reviewed, and then you can call it a probiotic. 
What what would you say mm-hmm. in your mind? Uh, because I, I would say I probably view it a little bit differently. I'm not. I don't subscribe so much to taking a pill, although there I know there's research on that. But where would you say you stand in terms of what a probiotic is? Well, because I'm you know so connected to the scientific community, um, I you know I guess what they see as a probiotic. Um, it's a capital P probiotic and there's, you know, an official definition. Um, it's published in a paper, um, well published originally in a paper in the early two thousands and then updated in 2014. It's by uh, Colin Hill and colleagues. Um, essentially there's, yeah, there's a paper that goes over the definition of a probiotic. Um, and that is, you know, exactly like the scientist said it is, it has to be tested and it has to have um, a proven benefit for a host health, for the host's health. Um, now, I think there's, you know, probiotics with not a capital P, um, which could also be called live cultures or live microorganisms, maybe, you know, various names. Um, but those are um, just live microorganisms that, you know, that we eat in our food, um, that I think I think it's much broader, and that they they may or may not specifically be contributing to health, but um, they're in the foods and they're very sort of natural in the sense that um, you know people use them before we had um, a lot of food processing techniques. They were the original food processors, these mm-hmm. microbes, um, because they'd take a substrate food and they'd change the flavor and texture. And you know, make it taste different so that, or or even preserve it so that it could last longer. Um, and and I guess so. You know, in my world, I guess I'd prefer to call those something else other than probiotics. I'd I maybe call them live microbes or a wild fermentation with microorganisms. But um, yeah, I do think that's a lot broader than just the very narrow specific category of ones that have been scientifically tested. Right. So scientifically tested and proven benefits for the host. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you had uh, children, Christina. Um, so mm-hmm. where, where along in the, in the process did you learn about um, or started getting interested in the microbiome and writing about that? And where along in the process did your children come along there? Um, they, you know, it was actually just sort of before the birth of my first child, my daughter, um, that I really started getting interested in all of this. And it was sort of at the same point, I started to be quite surprised as I learned more that, um, you know, in my prenatal care that we weren't discussing this more because I think by then we had, there, there was a lot of good research out there on, you know, the, the seeding of the baby's microbiome, uh, various things to do with pregnancy and probiotics and, None of that was discussed in my prenatal care. And in fact, when I'd bring it up, I'd kind of get blank stares. Um, I don't think that was the fault of any of my healthcare professionals. It's just that it wasn't part of the you know, conversation and the education around birth at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it seems to me that it's changing a little bit now. But um, so that, that was about five years ago, five and a half years ago, um, so my daughter's now five and a half. My son is three and a half. And I found, yeah, since they were born, probably both of them were born, um, 
there's a lot more talk and a lot more in the media about these things. Um, so I'm glad to see that it's getting more play, especially with regard to early life uh, care and, and prenatal care. Mm-hmm. So, that, so it sounds like um, at that time you, you made some decisions based on what you've been learning. Is that right? Yes, definitely. Um, I guess, again, um, thinking about this diet and health connection, um, I think, you know, and I talked about this with some of my friends who had an, like an OBGYN looking after them during pregnancy. Um, you know, the doctor would never say, okay, what are you eating? Um, and I think that's pretty critical. You know, when, when I was pregnant, knowing what I did about the microbiome, you know, I really tried my hardest to, you know, um, to eat well, to eat a lot of fiber, to not, you know, give in to the cravings when they were for like, a big ice cream sundae or something, um, just because I really felt that that um, immediate connection between, um, you know, diet and health in a way that maybe others didn't feel if they weren't prompted in mm-hmm. the same ways. Um, and the other part was around birth itself. So, have you talked much in your podcast about this idea of vaginal seeding? Uh, no, not yet. I've done some research and. Um uh, reached out to a few people, but no, share, share with us a little bit about that. Right. So, um, the, there was a a study several years back showing that when a child was born vaginally, they, um, are, they pick up microbes as they come through the birth canal and they are sort of seeded with a, you know, assuming that, um, the baby is relatively sterile in the womb and that's still the case. Um, as far as you know, researchers and doctors know, when it comes out and, and experiences all these microbes along the way, it is colonized with a certain set of bacteria that then go to work um, educating the immune system and setting it up for the rest of life. So, so that's the thought now. Um, and then it, there, there was a study that found that children born by C-section, of course, kind of lifted out and they they don't have that um, exposure to the microbes all along the dig- the, the um, birth canal. Um, they have a very different looking first set of microbes from you know those with a vaginal birth. So the thought is, um, you know, does this make children who are born by C-section um, does it predispose them to anything later in life? That's not yet known. Um, but we do know that at birth, they may look very different, these two kinds of babies, you know, depending on the mode of birth. And so that has led some to think, okay, well, what's a solution to this? If people, if, if babies born by C-section have different microbes, well, maybe we could take the microbes from the birth canal still and swab them all over the baby so that they get more of them. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly what's been tried in um, at least one study, very small study. Um, and essentially, yeah, they um, took a piece of sterile gauze, you know, put it into the birth canal of the mother, did the C-section, immediately pulled out the gauze and swabbed the baby all over the face and, and mouth and body. And hoping that that would inoculate the baby with these um microbes that it would normally have gotten exposed to. So that's a really interesting um, technique. I I think doctors are afraid that there could be risks, but when I was uh, pregnant, you know, I did 
talk about the possibility at least with my healthcare team. Um, and while we didn't end up having a C-section, I think it was worth bringing up the conversation um, because I think what's emerging is that it, you know, it can be risky, but it, you know, maybe should be a parent's decision whether they want to go ahead with that and just be really open about the communication with the healthcare team, you know, should that be something they want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting that you, you talk about that too, Christina. My sister is actually a doula and counsellor in Vancouver, uh, in White Rock. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems like uh, there's, I guess, more demand for a doula in general over there as opposed to Perth. We sort of still shun... Um, doulas a little bit um, in terms of this the general community but also just open to uh, doing stuff like swabbing or or anything like that have you noticed a difference in different cultures or um, when you travel around the world have you noticed a difference in different areas the way that people think about uh, health related to the microbiome yes absolutely um, I do have family in other parts of Canada and I have, you know, I I work for people in the US and Europe and it does definitely seem like you start with a different set of givens depending on what area of the world you're in. Um, And that has, yeah, definitely has to do with the kind of prenatal care, but also I think with other kinds of health professionals in general. Um, I think, you know, here on the West Coast, I think a lot of the health professionals are fairly um, open to sort of collaborating with um, other kinds, you know, more natural healthcare professionals. Like we have a cancer care center um, in Vancouver where they have teams of both, you know, medical doctors as well as naturopathic doctors and other various kinds of people that provide therapies that are outside Western medicine. So I love to see that collaboration. And I think you know, when it comes to the microbiome, I think that different healthcare professionals have a lot to teach each other. So science aside and efficacy aside, you know, how does this fit into the patient's life? And, you know, all these conversations, I think are really, really helpful in, in bringing people together, bringing disciplines together, and ultimately, you know, making people feel really happy about their care and, you know, helping them get better. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to interview um, Dr. Robin Chitkin, but uh, I've seen a few of her talks recently. Um, I've only seen her online as well, but uh, yeah. She, she's definitely, uh, in my mind, doing, doing a great thing and getting stuff out there. And um, when I followed her on Instagram, uh, there's, a, there's a little video of her like going down to the river and rubbing mud all in her face and on her skin. And I was like, look to my wife my wife's not you know that way inclined I'm like look this is like one of the leading gastroenterologists and she's rubbing dirt on her face yeah yeah it's pretty cool to see like how the science is being used and um and there's also that book by um Dr. Brett Finley and Marie Claire Arietta um they're both professors one's in Calgary Canada and one's in Vancouver Canada um they wrote a book called um let them eat dirt and that one is all about how um, the latest science on how exposure to germs can be really good for children and sort of a really, I found it a really nuanced take because 
it's not just saying like, oh, just go all germy, but it's like, you know, it, it provides some really good guidelines for actually how to avoid the nasty pathogens, but letting your kids get, you know, very dirty um, mm-hmm. in a safe way. Yeah, is there any is there anything there that you have discovered or found um, in terms of letting your kids get dirty? Um, you know, like I'm doing Korean natural farming at my place. We we rent and we I grow stuff in pots and in my um, bioponic system. And the idea behind Korean natural farming is you take certain things and culture microbes up um, and ferment. Uh, ferment different products and then pour them on your plants and that helps them to grow uh, like basically with with microbes microbes doing the the majority of the work but i'm always a little bit um not concerned but just conscious that you know you can get botulism if you 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 know you eat dirt or whatever so have you have you found any sort of um limits that you have stuck to or that you've seen other people like, okay, well, this is a line. We're not going to cross this line. Right. And I think, so for me, um, we have a very nice petting zoo just um, very close to us. And when I go there with my kids, I still um, make them wash their hands, you know, after we play with the animals. Because I think it's clear from the research that animals can have a lot of different pathogens. Um, and in fact, even at the zoo, um, we were visiting the zoo and there was a turtle walking around sort of free. And I just noticed one of the children touched it there. And, um, the, uh, the zookeeper said, Oh, you know, you know, get that child to wash their hands right away because they can carry salmonella. Like, I think that's all really good stuff. Mm -hmm. It's still really valid. Um, but on the other hand, if you're in sort of low risk environments, like your own organic garden or, um, for me, you know, we go to the beach a lot. So just playing on the rocks at the beach, I will let them have a snack without washing their hands. Um, because I think, you know, it seems like those are lower risk places to catch something that could actually make you sick. Um, but I think all of this comes from, you know, all of these guidelines, they just come from getting to know the bacteria a lot better. I think most of us, you know, and before I started this whole journey of writing about this area, I kind of lumped all bacteria into one big category. And now, you know, to me, they each have a personality. They each have things they do and don't do. And, you know, the pathogens, the very small subset of pathogens among all bacteria, um, they're distinct. And so just learn more about them where they live and then you can avoid them. So it's not, you know, it's less living in fear and just more getting to know the bacteria and their personalities. And then, you know, using that to, to live your life. Mm-hmm. So is there any research at the moment that's really informing us on that? Or, or is there any projects going on right now that uh, you're excited about uh, the, the information that's going to come from that? Um, so I mentioned before the, um, the global food omics as well as American gut. I think that's really interesting. And there are also um, some large cohort studies that I know of that will come out of Europe in the next while. But also, um, so another one that Rob Knight is involved with um, is the Earth Microbiome Project. And to me, that that, that one is going to be really key um, because it's taking information um, from 
the microbes of all environments, you know, a vast number of environments on Earth and trying to connect it all, um, including to human health. Um, and that, I think, will be a very big picture. You know, we've had the we've already had the human microbiome project um, in several phases, and that's really valuable information. And now I think um, we're going to be able to connect that with things happening all over Earth. And for example, um, you know, I, I heard an update of the Earth Microbiome Project when I was last in San Diego, and they have all kinds of stuff to do with animals, um, you know, identifying new pathogens that are harmful to animals and that we really need to try and stop right away if we're going to maintain the diversity of species of, say, frogs, you know, around the globe and sort of the microbial role in these, you know, the possible extinctions that could happen among animals. Mm. And then a lot about, again, agriculture, um, very diverse environments on Earth and sort of some of the threats to them as well as, you know, the possibilities, um, you know, learning more about these. Mm. It's very interesting. Just wanted to switch a little bit and just ask you, as uh, my wife and I have some in-depth in discussions about this and uh, about culture and uh, shaping society, and uh, I wanted to ask you, as, as a writer and as a woman, what would you say are some of the, the, uh, the things that you come up against when you're writing about the microbiome, writing in a, in a context where science is um, still uh, quite sexist in some ways? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's a very good question. I guess, you know, a writer, as a writer, I write um, sort of from my desk at home and I guess I have um, limited interactions maybe with this, you know, people in this field. I, I interview them by phone or whatnot. But I definitely see, you know, when I look at the scientists in this field, um, and I talk to many of them, I definitely notice that women, um, you know, describe different situations that they encounter in science that um, appear to be, you know, things that males don't face. And, you know, I see this all the time on Twitter, um, you know, detailed explanations of what's happened or, um, you know, it, it's things as simple as, um, you know, in lab meetings, um, having, you know, if you if you take a tally of who's talking, um, who has a turn to talk, you know, the males in the room, regardless of the number of them, they get, you know, 80% of the turns to speak mm. and women get 20%. And so, um, and, and things like that, they seem pretty minor, but, you know, are actually, they could really belie a, a very big problem. And then there's other things that are actually, you know, more, um, seem more serious, like, you know, um, sexual misconduct, you know, they describe things that happen in their labs um, that are very inappropriate. And so, yeah, so I guess to me, the way that I, you know, the role that I think I can have in this is, is as, you know, like a journalist, a writer, someone who brings out these voices of people who have these experiences because it seems like the world of science in general definitely um, 
is is stacked against women in many ways, and they they fight a lot to to get where they are. There's also this um, this thing about um, panels at conferences. Um, have you heard about these? You know, the nickname a manel. <laughs> no, no, but no. Oh, so <laughs> yeah, right. So you know, panels that um, are disproportionately men. You know, they've. Um, there's one microbiome scientist in particular who um, calls them, has, has, I don't know if he coined the term, but he uses the term mantle um, and sort of calls them out on social media and in some cases contacts the organizers to ask that they can change you know, the panel uh, to make it a little more diverse. Um, I love that the conversation is happening about diversity. Um, and I think, um, so, I guess, so for me, I don't feel as personally affected by it, but I I love uh, contributing to the conversation and watching it happen as, as sort of science, um, you know, evolves this way to to become more aware of um, of women in science and the things they face. And I have to say, you know, in my family now, when people make comments um, that are a little sexist, you know, I will start to call them out. And <laughs> I think I do my little part in my little world um, to help the cause, but. Um, again, uh, I love to see that this is happening um, and a little more challenge of, of the assumptions that we've had for so many decades. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, a, a big thing to come up against. And it's, you know, I give my wife credit for, for really helping me to enter into this conversation because, um, yeah, I mean, I was just a regular bachelor, male, you know, but it was, it was her challenging me that really was like, oh, okay, let's think about this. And um, we talk a lot about culture and changing culture. And in fact, when I was talking to Sandor Katz, we were, we were mentioning food culture and cultured food and how that brings people together around community. And um, we make the connection that however your, however your um, family unit is structured, Usually, uh, the woman is the nurturer. She has that uh, ability, you know, just to to care and to nurture the children. And so, a lot of the food decisions actually come from her. So, I see my role in in all of this is actually researching the information and presenting it to my wife. And then my wife's like, "Okay, well, maybe we could do this, and maybe we could do that," and actually. Um, yeah, making some changes together in a family unit. Right, and I think, yeah, exactly, that whatever family it is, you know, they'll have that person, whether it's a male or female, um, who, you know, takes care of that, you know, maybe the food of the household and the, you know, much of the, you know, getting of goods or buying of goods. Um, so, yeah, I think that's an important point that, you know, you can have this role of co-educating each other and then whichever one actually does the executing, you know, goes and does it based on the information they have. I think that's that's a really valuable idea. Mm-hmm. So how, how does that work in your family? What, what does that look like? Um, I'm definitely the one who does more of the cooking. Um, yeah, I would say um, my husband shares a lot of the, the tasks with the kids. Um, so, for example, the things about... Um, germs outside and washing hands, you know, that's definitely partly his domain. And so 
um, yeah, we share those responsibilities. But I guess as far as food and fermenting, um, I do a lot of that part. And I guess what I love um, about the fermented foods is, you know, similar to what Sandor Katz was saying, that I, I do think it connects us with people around us um, so effectively. And even just the act of, of getting your first, you know, sourdough culture or getting your first um, kombucha mother. It's like, where do you get that? You can't, you know, very few people come up with that themselves. I guess maybe if you're very skilled, you know, you know how to do that original one, but most people get it from another person, mm -hmm. a neighbor or a friend. And I kind of love that, that there's this continuity, this, this group of microbes that that is passed on from one little unit to another and um, and it lives, right? And you keep it alive. And I think that's that's a really kind of a good teacher about how to connect as a community. Yeah, and it's a, it's an interesting, uh, at the very least, it's an interesting way of engaging with um, people around you. I remember, in fact, it was in Victoria, BC, where I saw my first kombucha, I think it was about 15 or 16 years ago and I was like what is that thing floating in there right um, and it's just a great great conversation starter absolutely I totally agree and I think um I mean I have a kombucha starter that I can actually tell you the, the history of it and so basically I I got it from a woman in Vancouver that was part of this fermented foods group um and so she gave it to me and what happened was I took some of it up to uh, my sister-in-law who lives in the, the north of Canada, in the Arctic, Iqaluit. And so I took some to her and I kept mine at home. And then, you know, <laughs> tragedy befell. I, uh, um, the fruit flies got into mine, so mine was sort of ruined. Um, so the next trip I went back to Iqaluit, I took my, you know, my uh, kombucha mother, part of it back because you know my sister-in-law had nurtured it and grown it, took it back home again, and then also moved house. And so through all those stages, I have, you know, I had this kombucha mother and it's still sitting on my counter. I haven't used it for a long time, but I just don't want to get rid of it because it, it connects me to all those places. And you know, the person, one person I really love, which is my sister-in-law. Um, and I think, you know, to me, it's like, it has, it has traces of all those places and which is a really cool connection and sort of emotionally tied up for me. That's so cool. I really love that idea. And, and yeah, like you said, there will be influence from the environment and the microbes in that environment from wherever it's gone. Right. Mm. I just want to ask you, Christina, um, you know, the, the idea, this podcast is called The Probiotic Life and um, not necessarily probiotics like what we've been talking about, but more the idea that um, we can create life around us, create life uh, wherever we are, um, in the garden, um, in our kitchen, in our health and in our communities. Um, what would you like to leave us with in terms of uh, an idea or something that we can take away about the probiotic life? Yes, and I love this idea. And I think, um, to me, the probiotic life, it's sort of a life of living in the moment. Um, 
And, you know, this is something that I've tried to do. (laughs) You know, I'm the kind of person, I'm sort of type A, I like to get things done, I like to move to the next thing. And I've tried really hard over the past, say, decade to train myself to be in the moment sometimes and to, you know, to take breaks from thinking what's next, what's next, what's next. Um, And to me, I would go so far as to say that fermented foods help me do that. Um, You know, thinking about fermented foods, they're very temporal. They change all the time. You know, you have to, so if something, if a fermented food is on your counter, it can taste very different a few hours later because, you know, the microbes continue to work. Mm. And so to me, it's about like fermented foods are a way, again, to connect, to take moments out, to live in the moment and appreciate what you have at that very moment. And, um, and that's what I think is so beautiful about microbes. They're always changing. And uh, so you can, you know, you can take time out and, and let them teach you how to, how to slow down. Um, that's what I've taken from this. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, a great idea to end on, just to, to observe the microbes that you're working with, whether it's in compost or it's in a sauerkraut, and uh, take time to slow down and be in the moment. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, Christina, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciated uh, your chat, and thanks for being on The Probiotic Life. Thank you so much. I hope you learned something from that conversation today. Once again, all of the show notes and the links, including Christina's website, buychriscampbell.com, will be up on the Probiotic Life website. And while you're there, why don't you check out the FPJ giveaway? And once again, thanks for listening. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.